This episode of the podcast is brought to you by my company, Horns of Odin. Now, Horns of Odin is a family-run business, and we sell Norse-inspired products. Particularly, we specialise in handmade, handcrafted drinking horns, which I made myself. But alongside that, we have a huge clothing collection. We sell a bunch of different meads. We've got beers and ales. We've got handmade jewellery, books, artwork. So if you like the sound of any of that, pop over to the website. It's www.hornsofodin.com. If you, if you like anything, pop it in the cart. Use the code HORNS10 at checkout, and you're going to get 10% off your entire order. Now, that's HORNS10. It's going to get you 10% off your entire order. It's just a little thank you from us for listening to the podcast. The podcast is also brought to you by our website, NordicMythologyPodcast.com. Some of you have already seen that we've got a bunch of different merch on there. We've got some T-shirt designs. Now, we've just added a brand new limited edition T-shirt. So there's only going to be 100 of these printed. After that, we're never going to print them again. So just pick one up whilst you can. So the design has been done by last week's guest, Jakob, a.k.a. Raven from the North, who was on last week's episode. It's a one-off design. Just pop over to the website, have a look. It's Odin and his two ravens. It's a really beautiful t-shirt. I'm definitely going to get one. I think we've sold probably about 25% of them already. So just pop over to NordyMythologyPodcast.com and have a look and see what you think. Right, let's jump into the show. Welcome to the Nordic Mythology Podcast. Before we jump into the episode, I just wanted to quickly give a, a thank you to everybody. As some of you will have noticed, this is episode 50, um, which is unbelievable. Me and Mateus started this as a bit of a passion project once a month, and it quickly became fortnightly. And then now every week um, we employ a producer, an editor, and you know it, it's been growing. So that's pretty much down to everybody who's taking the time to listen and support us on Patreon and buy the merchandise as well. So thank you very much for that. Uh, yeah, let's jump into the show. So I'm Daniel Farron, corner of the company Hans Vodin, and I'm joined as always by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. Hello, everyone. And another uh, special announcement. Uh, today is the Sami National Day. Uh, just wanted to say congratulations to all the Sami people out there, the indigenous inhabitants of uh, northern Scandinavia. So Lihkubavin uh, to all of you. I just wanted to um, let everybody know uh, what a special guest we have today. So Professor Martin Carver um, was an army officer for 15 years, a freelance archaeologist for 13 years and has been an academic for 20 years. His specialties are archaeological practice and proto-historic Europe. He has a degree in mathematics and chemistry from UCL and a diploma in Anglo-Saxon studies from the uh, University of Durham. Um, he was elected as the first secretary of the newly found, uh, formed Institute of Field Archaeologists in 1982 and vice president of the Society of Anti Antiquaries in 2002. And he was also appointed professor of archaeology at York in 1986 and was head of the department from 86 to uh, 96. And yeah, I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> very, very much welcome. Um, Professor Carver. <laughs> if you call me Martin, it's easier because I don't Absolutely. Have a response for Professor. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you very much. I, I think this is probably the, 
the episode I've been most excited about. So, I mean, the, the, I think the main thing to speak about would be obviously Sutton Who. Um, are you are you able to give a quick outline on what Sutton Who is and its importance? Yeah, sure. Um, Sutton Who is a cemetery. It's actually a series of three cemeteries, but you can't see much now. Basically, there's a little group of low mounds uh, just uh, parked on an upper terrace beside the River Deben in Suffolk. And the Deben is um, flowing away to the North Sea. And the place that uh, these burial mounds are is just about the tidal limit. So just beyond there, you can you could once have crossed on a ford, but um, now there's a bridge, Wilford Bridge there. So it's quite an interesting place, and it sort of could be said to be the front door of the East Anglian Kingdom, because uh, people come in by sea, come up the rivers, and if you came up the River Deben, you would uh, eventually spot these mounds when they were still at their proper height. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the right-hand side. And you can imagine people giving instructions like that, just uh, the way you find us is, etc. And then... Do you know how tall the mounds would have been originally? Yeah, we, we reconstructed Mound 2. We excavated the whole mound. And um, when we found it, it was about two metres above ground level. And uh, we realized that all these mounds have been plowed. So they've been quite heavily plowed in the 18th, 19th century. So they weren't, they're they're nothing like the height they once were. So we worked out the height because around this uh, mound too, there was a ditch, which was a quarry ditch. And that quarry ditch had 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 the sand and soil taken out of it to build the mound. So we could calculate the volume of earth that uh, had been taken out and we knew the diameter of the mound, and therefore, with a, an amazing equation, which was about a foot long, uh, they could work out what the roughly what the height was. Basically, it's about five to six meters. That that's the height. So, if you stand on top of mound two as we reconstructed it, if you go down mm-hmm. there, stand on top of that mound, um, you get a really smashing view of the um, of the river and Bridge and Melton opposite across the river. Uh, so you would have been able to see um, quite a long way up towards the uh, North Sea and quite a long way down, uh, well, other way around, sorry, down river towards the North Sea and up towards the, the site of Ufford, mm-hmm. uh, which was the old ford there. So that's what I say at the moment, uh, except that you've also got the National Trust's um, uh, um, visitor centre, because that's who owns the site now. So I imagine they would have been very much visible. I, I, I mean, I, I must admit, I've not been been down there yet. Is it quite flat around that area anyway? Yes, it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a flat landscape. Um, but the, uh, the, the, the first, the gravel terrace takes it up about uh, 30 feet from the level of the, the river, about 10 metres higher than the river. So that, that's all, along that um, terrace is where the mounds are. So they're well out of reach of the, of the water, but they would have been looking down on a much wider river than the river is then now. 
So the river, the river's been embanked in the 17th century. So, so basically there would have been a quite a wide area. That area would have been wide enough to turn around a 27 meter long ship, which was the one buried in Mound One. And um, we'll, um, incidentally, we are building a replica of that ship at, at the moment. Oh, wow. Uh, opposite uh, the burial mounds in, the, in, in Woodbridge. There's a former uh, shipwright's premises, Wistock it's called, and uh, we've acquired that. And uh, we have a group called the Ships Company who are building this ship uh, with um, oak, uh, which they've acquired and, uh, and a splitting. Uh, so that's going to be a huge adventure. If we ever get out of lockdown, uh, <laughs> we'll be able to finish it and then and do some do some um, traveling, just like the uh, the wonderful um, traveling uh, uh, voyages that have been undertaken by Rochilda, for example, and um, and the Norwegian uh, experimental craft. So we're we're a bit new to this, but we're in touch with Roskilde. We we have a have friends there, so they're helping us get organized and um, so we've got every every hope that we will build a boat which will actually float <laughs> and, uh, not and not capsize like, like the last one I was in uh, uh, that was that was a Viking ship um, yeah, those Vikings don't know how to make ships yeah, yeah. well <laughs> useless this was this was actually built in Norway it was a it was a ship called the Edda uh, which oh. was a, a beautiful ship absolutely. A wonderful ship. It was called uh, Dröningen first, and then it was called Edelade, but it's called, and when it sank, there was this magic headline in the Norwegian newspapers, something like uh, Dröningen till Bunds. I probably pronounced <laughs> that wrong. <laughs> I think it roughly means Dröningen went to the bottom, which it did. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the story behind that, if you're interested, is that we were trying to see whether you could tack in a Viking ship. And uh, we, th there was a big theory about this uh, vessel. Uh, they'd found a long pole, sort of forked pole, in the Oseberg burial and wondered what it was for. And then in the beautifully preserved Oseberg ship, they found two sockets up near the, um, up near the prow and decided that by sticking the uh, one end into the socket and the V would then push push the throat of the sail out, you could make it into a kind of jib-like formation, which ought to be able to tack. And it, they may have been right, uh, but and it's very possible that the Vikings knew how to tack, but we plainly didn't because we, we, got, we got blown over. <laughs> <laughs> what, I mean, I'm a non-sailor, so what is tacking? Tacking is when you can head head into the wind a bit. So oh, okay. The, the whole point about this is that if you've got Sutton, who had um, probably forty oarsmen, it had it had room for forty oarsmen, but we don't know whether it sailed or not. Viking mm. ships also have oar ports so that you can row them, but they also have masts and they also have sails. Now, if you um, can't tack, if you can only go with the same direction as the wind. Uh, then you need quite a big crew because you, you've got to be able to row yourself out of trouble if you want to go, if you don't want to go where the wind is going, which is okay. quite true, quite a lot of uh, <laughs> you've got cargo and things like that. However, if you can make to windward, 
in the boat, if, if you know how to do that, then you don't have to have so many people and you can have a lot more cargo. So it would hugely in increase the, the power of, um, well, especially the merchant power of, of a Viking ship. Doesn't matter so much if you're a war ship because you've got lots of people on board and all those people can row when they're not fighting. <clears throat> and you've probably got enough to have relief crews and, and so on. Well, that's Vikings. Of course, Sutton who is uh, a couple of hundred years earlier and although the ship looks very similar, clinker-built, mm -hmm. beautiful clinker-built ship, <clears throat> it looks similar. It's bigger than most Viking ships, and um, there was no trace of a step for the mast, <clears throat> none mm -hmm. at all. So we don't know, you know. So is the, is the uh, construction similar to uh, what we know from Yachtswing and uh, Newdam? Not really, no, they're, they're um, uh, earlier and they tend to have, um, Newdam has sewn uh, rather than riveted. So basically it belongs to another family, which begins with Kvalshorn, I suppose that's the first one, and then goes on to uh, um, the um, Roskilde group um, and um, the one in uh, Denmark, uh, uh, what's that one called? The one uh, it's on display. They've they've reconstructed the ship inside a mound. What's that? Mm. I can't remember. Uh, oh, that's a Lelby. Yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah. There. So they're, all those are sailing ships. They are sailing ships, and they are riveted with iron. So the planks overlap, mm -hmm. and then they riveted with iron. So the Sutton Hoo ship is also made of overlapping planks. But uh, we don't know whether it sailed. So that that's going to be what, what we're going to do with it is we're going to practice rowing it. Mm -hmm. So uh, we'll have plenty of volunteers to do that. Um, we'll practice rowing, rowing it in the river, and then rowing it on a lake, and then rowing it in the sea. And then we're <laughs> going to see if it sails, and then we're going to take it on shore, and then try and um, work out how you do a portage with it. Oh, wow. And the last, I, this is all in the future when we built it, of course, but then the last, uh, the last act of this trial is to take the ship up the hill to the burial ground, see how hard that was. Mm. <laughs> Imagine it row, using rollers and mm -hmm. grease and all the, all the things that, uh, that have already been um, shown. Many of them have been done by um, experimental archaeologists in, in Scandinavia, but particularly in, in Norway and Denmark. They've, they've done some fantastic work and also some amazing voyages. So we, we are hoping to do something similar with an earlier ship. Do we know what a boat like that would weigh? Like, say, if it's made out of oak, I imagine it would be pretty heavy. Pretty heavy as well if it's... So don't forget it's got iron rivets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We know there's about 3,000 of those to hold the thing together. Mm. So these, these are all hull first builds, as you probably know. The, 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 you, you make the shell, that's the, the hull, and then you put in uh, the, uh, the wooden uh, frame and the thwarts and also the benches and things, all that come in second. So the hull alone is amazingly, amazingly heavy, but it displaces the water, and then uh, you've got because it's hollow, you've got, you've got the place of the water, and then you've got a tremendous carrying capacity, you know, 27 mm -hmm. 
is quite long. It's quite bigger than the average yacht. So anyway, that's an adventure to come. But it is, yeah. more about <laughs> the, the site we, you're interested in. I think the, the the main thing to know about it is that things moved on a lot since the days depicted in the the film The Dig, which we've been uh, everyone's been going. There's been a big media storm about it uh, <laughs> over the last week. Uh, I have to say, I did like the film, and I thought the acting was absolutely amazing. Really, really brilliant. I enjoy. I really enjoyed it. Oh, good. I'm glad you did. I, it doesn't tell you much about the archaeology, really. Um, and as you've probably noticed, the, the, if you've been to the site, that it was actually filmed somewhere else. It's filmed in in Surrey. But I don't think that was, I, I was a bit offended by this to start with, but I, I realised I was wrong because filming it in Surrey, they pr produced the scene of the 1939 excavations when they excavated this big boat. Um, map, you know, a big expanse of heath. If you go to Sutton Hoo, you don't see a big expanse of heath anymore. It's entirely surrounded by cash crops. Uh, turf and potatoes, things like that. So it just doesn't look like it would have let, looked like like wild heathland uh, in, in, the, in the 1939. So I think that was a good move. Mm -hmm. and, um, I, I think the excavation was, well, you know, they, they did their best by reconstructing it and so on. But of course, the actual excavation wasn't quite like that. But I thought, I thought the film was fine. It, you know, it, for what it did, a really nice uh, portrait of a little group of... Um, Kind of middle-class English people on the on the brink of Second World War, trying to sort out all their social problems and so on. It was quite for me, yeah, it was good. It was like sort of Chekhov for me. It was really, really nice, sort of rather sad and. He's <laughs> <laughs> quintessentially British as well. Yeah, and the acting was just so fantastically good. You know, I mean, I, I would not have believed that Ralph Fiennes, who's um, was he Voldemort, isn't he? Voldemort, now? yes. <laughs> he really came across as really pretty convincing uh, Basil Brown. So you can imagine in the real, thing, the real thing that happened was that we had um, uh, they had two seasons out of 38 season, and they uh, just um, dug trenches through three miles, which was quite successful. They realised all three had already been dug which is pretty normal for any set of barrows. Um, they found scraps of stuff which suggested much more likely to be medieval than Bronze Age. I think everyone was expecting there to be Bronze Age mounds, mm -hmm. cluster like that. Uh, but, you know, it looked as though, oh, no, this looks more like uh, something early medieval. They weren't quite sure what. And then the next year, the landowner uh, said she'd like to dig the, the, the biggest mound, which is the Mound One, and that was the one which contained the, the big ship, and um, the ship contained uh, the treasure. So that itself, I think, is a really um, st a starting point for the next phase of the research, which is what I was involved in. And I expect you know uh, a bit about the the actual burial itself is is that something you want me to talk about particularly? Ab absolutely, for, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, for the people who are who are listening. So, when you said they've been excavated before, is that professionally or by people looking to steal what they can, or both? Well, we yeah, we have two phases. Uh, in fact, uh, 
one of the things we did in our uh, project was to excavate the earlier excavations to try and find out what sort of the excavations had taken place before. Mm-hmm. Basically, there's two major campaigns. The first one is uh, beginning of the 17th century, 1600s, something like that. And they did vertical shafts. So the mounds must have been bigger in those days. And they went to the top and then drove a shaft right down the bottom as far as it until they hit something uh, juicy and then they they would collect the the fines and uh, that had happened in mound two and it also i think most of them had been done as a matter of fact uh, mound one was also done but um mound one was a, a sort of more of a, a lozenge shaped mound more 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 like a, a ship shaped mound if you see what i mean and the uh, the end of it had been cut off by ploughing, so when they sh- sunk their shaft down, they sunk it down the middle of the of the of the mound as it then was. So they missed the burial chamber by some some way. Uh, so they went down. They must have gone down about 10, 12 meters, and at the bottom was a seventeenth century uh, gin bottle. Um, one, one of these Bellamine flasks. Uh, so they'd obviously got to the bottom and thought, oh, <laughs> 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 that was a waste of time, and then got out before they were buried. Uh, so they missed the chamber. Mine 17, they also missed the chamber. We also found a hole there. Mine 17 had two burials in it, a burial of a young man, and next to that, the burial of a horse, uh, so that they came down between the two. So that, that's how... Mound 17 was the second intact burial. Mound 1 and Mound 17 are two intact burials. So so when they do that, kind of, I guess it's almost like a drilling straight down, do they, does it just destroy everything that it goes through? Yeah, well, they're looking for treasure. So they, they know what they want. Uh, and okay. they know that there's a burial there somewhere. And they know that burials often have things in them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't suppose they knew what exactly what sort of a burial it was. But even if they find... Uh, you know, something of bronze or whatever. I mean, obviously, they're hoping for gold. Um, and from the point of view of, you know, the the, the, the history of archaeology, this, this takes place round about the end of the, uh, when the Reformation has happened. And therefore, there's a lot less, um, let's say, superstition about interfering with mounds. In other words, the the, the agenda switches from um, trying to respect uh, a burial uh, to looting it, uh, and um, you know the the, the great um, uh, the idea in that age was was trying to get as rich as you can, so that they would they would have got away with quite a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. The second campaign is in 1860, and we know that because it was actually in the newspapers uh, of 1860, the local the local newspapers, and the method there was to drive a trench at ground level straight through the mound and then somewhere along the along that trench you'll you'll find the burial and then you collect the burial however the 1860s landowners had changed their view quite a lot so although it's still uh if you like their mounds they were more interested in the antiquarian viewpoint 
this is the time when there were lots of societies going around, lots of people interested, lots of meetings. And in fact, you had kind of lunch parties, uh, invite lots of friends and say, uh, you are invited to a grand lunch uh, with lots of wine. And then afterwards there will be a mound opening. And then uh, you, the, the laborers are put to work so that <laughs> they've got something nice to see. Uh, then they go out afterwards, and then the, the uh, uh, you um, they get shown the things as they come out of the ground. When, when we re-excavated Mound Seven and Mound Five, both of them had steps cut in the lateral leading down into the chamber, so that uh, uh, people could come down, and uh, gentlemen in their top hats would come <laughs> down and look and the ladies with their umbrellas would be standing at the top and then they would bring, bring out what was, what was found. So they did manage to get rid of an awful lot of stuff like that as well. And we, we, all we know about the finds of the, light, of the 1860 expedition was that they said um, it was, um, uh, they, well, they thought the mounds were Roman, but they said, uh, we found, um, Something like something like six bushels, which is like a measure of grain. So six bushels of iron screw bolts um, for not not much use could be found. So they were taken away to the local blacksmith uh, to be made into horseshoes. <laughs> now those, of course, were ship rivets that they discovered in Mound Two. So they didn't know what they were because they went you know straight through the ship. So mm -hmm. <laughs> they they. Um, Oh, wasn't much left of it. That must be so frustrating for you as an archaeologist to see what's gone before and been done inaccurate and, and and the amount of knowledge that must have been lost and destroyed. Yeah, sure. But, but I mean, you know, that, that's what happens. And anyway, my priority has always been the story. I, I've been, you know, everybody likes finding a bit of gold and I've found a bit, but I don't, I don't think it's really as exciting as piecing together what happened and I suppose in recent years we've rather included the work of unrecorded excavations as part of the mound story so mm. I was actually quite excited to find these evidences of 19th century antiquities uh, <laughs> on, on the mound. Anyway that, that was those were the ones that we we found so that's why they it was quite obvious that they'd been dug in before you could see little you know, broken bits of blue glass and, and uh, gold discs which had come off a shield or something like that. So in parentheses, Mound 2, uh, which we looked at pretty thoroughly, that was just as rich as Mound 1 once. Okay. Uh, and it had a ship, but it did, but the ship was over the top of it rather than uh, the chamber being in the ship. So the ship was on the chamber and then the mound on top of that, see. That was Mound 2. So like uh, many of our Scandinavian colleagues, we've always asked ourselves, what, what does this mean? What do the burial rites mean? You know, is it just something you choose or are the burial rites aimed at something uh, like a, like a particular a supernatural concept that uh, you have? Um, obviously, you know, it's, uh, it's clear that there, there is a, um, if there's a ship, they have the idea is that that ship must be taking the dead person somewhere. Mm -hmm. 
Well, Mound One is probably the best example we've got in Britain of such a burial. Um, it was so well preserved. Um, it had been crushed, of course, under the weight of the mound. And also by the chamber, the chamber was really like uh, the Gokstadt chamber, if you know that. It's a, you know, heavy timbers. Um, it, it, and that was situated in the middle of the boat at Gokstadt. So we, we had the same kind of setup. And that had fallen down as well. So there was this quite sort of densely packed uh, deposit, which had in it, um, uh, the, the, firstly, the roof, and then the uh, lots of the, uh, the finds or the, the artifacts that were that were placed in the in the chamber. There was a log coffin, quite a big one, uh, which wasn't um, published in the 1939 report because they didn't really believe in it. Uh, but we have reason to believe in it now. A really big, you know, massive log coffin. And then that was sitting on a floor, and that floor was sitting on the bottom of the boat. So you can see quite a lot of wood that was there, and also all these finds. And I, Sib, sorry, before we get into the actual finds of what what's in there, one question I had that I've been wanting to ask all week, to be honest, is obviously we see quite a few Viking ship burials, and it's quite synonymous with with Vikings. Can that be related to Sutton Hoo in any way? In could it have influenced that? Obviously, it was it was pre-Viking age, but mm. I imagine some Scandinavians were living in that area at the time that migrated across. So, can that can that have influenced it? Or were Anglo-Saxons also doing ship burials as well? I think the the I think what we have to do is to sort of roll back a bit and look at uh, the northwest part of Europe uh, and uh, look, at, look, look at the North Sea as being a cultural zone, if that makes sense. So you've got uh, the coast of Norway, coast of Sweden, uh, the multiple coasts of Denmark and the route to the Baltic. Uh, you've got the Germanic group, groups living in the top of uh, Europe. And then from the fifth century onwards, uh, there are also Germanic peoples in in Britain, i.e. the English, and they are all up um, the well. They're sort of on the southeast part of the island, so they're in. They're, they're sort of stretching from from Kent into East Anglia, and then they into Lincolnshire, and then they start to run out a bit in Northumbria, which is sort of more like still British. And that those people bring with them some of the beliefs of. Um, the northern zone of Europe, if I can call it that, mm -hmm. those beliefs are really old because we're looking right back into uh, the kind of observations that Tacitus made of the Iron Age people of Germania. And they, so it was already known that they were interested in um, uh, bog burials and various other kinds of, of burials and that there were also Bronze Age burial mounds, huge burial mounds. Um, there was also uh, ship settings, of course, in that time, and if, uh, places in um, Sweden, for example, uh, where stones are set in a sort of ship-like manner. Yelling also had one. Um, and th those are um, suggestive, very suggestive, in that the ship, 
has a meaning, has a, has a spiritual meaning uh, for those people and particularly for the person who is being celebrated. That person is, I mean, I think all one has to remember is that the, the ship is the most important machine uh, in the lives of Northern Europeans for millennia. Um, okay, they, they, they change in the way that they're made. Uh, the technology appears to be more like frame first skin boats followed by uh, hull first clinker built boats, but I mean, it is a change, I agree. But nevertheless, the ship matters a lot. It's, it's your main way of getting about. Um, if you're a, a, a maritime people, and this is what we think we're talking about. So those um, um, ships, I think, are, are wonderfully uh, evocative of, of, of the period. Um, you were, you were going to ask me something else, or was that, was that what you were, you were? Can I just add a couple of things to, to, to this, um, uh, the aspect of like the relationships between Scandinavia and, and, um, and East Anglia in this context? I mean, we have, um, as you mentioned, Sweden, we have Uppsala. Yeah. As, a, as a site that has um, has a lot of uh, um, things that you know uh, 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 sort of th th there seems to be a lot of overlaps, right? We have Vendel and Valskera as well as uh, as sites with overlaps. Just the recently found Hoistine in Denmark as well. This uh, presumably the largest uh, stone ship setting uh, from Scandinavia. Um, and that one is from around 600, as far as I, I know. And it, there's also gold finds. I don't know much about it, about it actually, because it's so new. Um, <laughs> the Bronze Age, aren't they? The, the one I saw at Arnhemshug, yeah, that's uh, that tends to be, that's a Bronze Age uh, ship setting. And so is the Yelling one, isn't it? No, the Yelling one, I believe. Uh, so the Yelling one has... Yelling is actually like a quite an interesting complex because you have Bronze Age mounds and then you also have a very deliberate refashioning uh, in the Viking Age in, in the, uh, the, the 960s um, and, and late 50s. You have, first of all, you have Gorm's uh, mound, um, which uh, Gorm, Gorm the Old is the, 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 the father of Harold Bluetooth who Christianizes Denmark. Uh, he he has a mound and then a major ship setting made around uh, the, the mound, and then you have Gorm, uh, sorry uh, Harold Bluetooth, who then refashions the site uh, and puts up the the yelling stone and says now we've christianized the Danes and all that stuff. And then you have a mound that's sort of like awkwardly placed on the backside of the ship setting. Almost as if he wanted to anchor it or something, <laughs> so that he wouldn't sail away to <laughs> to the death realm. So it very much, in, in my opinion, it very much looks like we have a, uh, a, a sort of an elite of society in this whole area, signaling that they they belong to a similar culture, a a, a very related culture. Yeah, I think you're right, and I think let, let's call it a spiritual language but endures. And I'm not so sure that uh, it has to be an elite. I think there are, is an elite and, the, and maybe they're the ones that signal it, signal it most emphatically. Uh, but there is, a, there is some kind of, uh, of, of language. They, they, they speak ship and they speak uh, animal ornament and 
all, all this is gathered together in the mind. But the interesting thing that happens is that not everybody buries always like this, even if they belong to the culture. So that what seems to happen is that in any community, I mean, let's say, for example, uh, Sweden, let's, let's call it, let's think of that for a moment. They don't always do it either. I mean, sometimes you do stone settings and then they tend to be rather prehistoric, but then later on you start building mounds. Then you have ships in the mounds and that goes on to the Viking period. But, you know, a place like Falciada has, has the, the sequence, doesn't it? The sequence of the Vendel period and then right up to Viking period as well. Very interesting, but it's not always. Um, see, I think there's some kind of big discourse in the area of the two seas, the North Sea and the Baltic, uh, where they're very conscious of what's happening further south. Sometimes uh, you're not bothered. Sometimes you take advantage of it. Sometimes you're quite worried and you need to um, defend yourself or defend your, let's call it, defend your, your spiritual province mm. of what's coming at you. And to go to the place I know better in, in, in Britain, we don't have mounds very much in the Anglo-Saxon period. They don't start to appear until quite late in the occupation, like late seventh, early, sorry, late sixth, early seventh at the, at the earliest. And that's the first lot of mounds that we have. And they're quite small and they're all quite a small group and they're all in East Anglia. So the first question that it was, was I put when I was uh, appointed to do the, the second campaign in the 80s and 90s, uh, when we looked at the great ship burial, um, it was that was why that, why there, why then? That's what we wanted to ask because we knew that ship burial wasn't continuous. They were they were quite few and far between, and they were particularly, you know, it happened very seldom. But when it did happen, a lot of it happened together. Mm -hmm. Snape and so all those things happened at the same time. What was going on at that time? Well. The conversion to Christianity was going on at that time. Uh, we know that because we've got Augustine arriving, and we've got uh, a, a Christian Queen of Kent, uh, Redwald, who was probably buried in Mound One, had been to see the King and Queen of Kent and asked about this Christianity, what's coming our way, and they said, "Well, there are advantages, disadvantages," and I think those debates will have happened quite a lot, and uh, so. That for me, that makes ship burial, firstly, uh, definitively pagan, and secondly, definitively spiritual. So I don't buy this question of, oh well, they thought they might as well put him in an old boat. You know why not? <laughs> I, I doubt that. <laughs> I mean, it must take some effort to to carry not only to carry the boat there, but to also then cover it in the amount of muck and dirt to cover the whole thing must take some some time absolutely and i think those things too i don't know whether this has been as uh, studied elsewhere but um we were very interested in the amount of earth as i mentioned that that makes mound you know make mound too but uh, when we dug mound um uh, uh which one was it called mound five is the earliest there we dug that. It was really interesting because they didn't have a quarry ditch. They had two sets of pits. On one side, 
that is on the eastern side, there was a little ring of pits. And then on the other side, there was a long sort of straggling trench. So it was as though two different kinds of people had been digging out soil to make the mound. In other words, there is a relationship of some sort between the number of people and the kind of people who make the mound and the person being celebrated. In, in other words, it's something you can do. Everybody can do it, even if they're not rich. They can go and dig a hole, carry a basket and put something on the mound. And in the case of Mound 5, in the pits, which we rather think of as the, the sort of the upper class effort, um, they had um, uh, bones of, of uh, oxen in the pit. They, they'd been uh, eating, it'd been a funeral feast of some sort. I mean, very badly preserved, so it, it didn't look all that grand. But but there's no doubt that's what they were. They were they were cattle, and that they'd uh, been butchered. So we we can we started to see something of the ceremony uh, for Mound Five, which was the with the earliest mound. Not nearly so easy with with Mound One because it was all flattened. But yeah, but I I know I have no doubt at all that that's what we're what we what we have trouble with is reading it and translating that into something which is comparable mm -hmm. to a book religion, because that is so much more specific. That's a really good point. I, I really like this. It, it, I think it's really interesting to consider that it's a, a, a sort of a, a, a reaction towards um, what's coming from the South, right? We're seeing a, uh, um, a missionary uh, a, a push from, from the Frankish area, and and uh, the the Pope is also involved. We we want to Christianize uh, <laughs> Britain, and uh, and this is right in that period, very very close to 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 sort of the 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 end of the pagan era in the middle of the six hundreds, if I remember correctly, right? Um, that that these uh, mounds go up. So that makes a lot of sense. I think, um, what's his name? Uh, the uh, Danish-German archaeologist Minas is, is uh, the nickname he goes by. He's written an article about, about the, um, the grave and this little axe um, type uh, uh, hammer. The axe hammer, yeah, 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 that was very interesting. Yeah, yes, uh, yes, I know that guy. I met him in... in in Sweden, I'm just trying to remember what his name is. Anyway, I, I, he's right. Uh, for some time, it was. If 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 you haven't, uh, for those who haven't seen it, it's like a a long iron shaft. It has a little ring on one end. On the other end, it has an axe and a, um, and a hammerhead. They're they're sort of joined together. And when it was found, it was found in the bottom of the boat and. People didn't quite know what it was, but they thought, oh, well, probably it's um, to mend the boat, you know, or to make the boat, or it's a boat builder's axe, and so on. It was reread um, by uh, the scholar. Uh, Anders Dobat, that's his name. <laughs> uh, Anders Dobat, he, yeah, exactly. He, he, he looked at it again, realised that it was for um, uh, killing cattle, and that this was like a... Um, a, a ceremonial axe hammer uh, to dispatch sacrificial cattle. And um, I thought this was a, a great idea anyway. 
but in I just mentioning in brackets that um, fast forward about uh, 15 years and a friend of mine was um, digging up in um, uh, digging up in Scotland in Rhiney um, and there uh, they have um, standing Pictish standing stones and those Pictish standing stones were pointing towards the site which he excavated that at that site he excavated had big hall in it, it had places for the standing stones, it had fortifications, and it had pits which were full of um, calcined cattle bones. Mm. And uh, it also had, crazily, uh, some manufacture of souvenirs. And amongst the souvenirs was a miniature axe hammer, mm. very like Sutton Hoo. Uh, in other words, this seems to have been the same kind of spiritual zone, uh, the uh, head of the community is responsible for bringing luck by uh, sacrificing a bull or a cow, uh, then it's, uh, it's uh, eaten and then the bones are burnt on the bonfire and so on. But because people are encouraged to build, to visit this place, um, you know, a bit like the, uh, the, the comparable places would be somewhere like Helia, I suppose, in 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 Sweden, uh, sacred places which are being visited. You know, they're, they're, mm -hmm. they're like uh, attracting. If they were Christian, they'd be pilgrims. But the, but it's very common in prehistory to find evidence of this. Usually, they send them up a hill, uh, but going on an island is just a little bit easier, and <laughs> it's not so difficult to get to Rhine. It wasn't that interesting. So that's like a that was like a really nice. Uh, um connection which we weren't really expecting but of course the Picts aren't the same as the Scots the Picts are the eastern settlers of the north part of um Scotland and they're just as near uh Scandinavia as the rest of eastern England so that's why I think it's um related but yeah I quite agree that's that's amongst the many things there but we have to get used to mount one ship having a lot of different kinds of messages um and um, what I try and understand is, is what might have happened on the day of burial. Uh, the ship lies open. Just before we get into the actual goods inside the ship, one thing I just wanted to quickly ask was to pull it back to the actual burial itself, how we were saying Christianity was kind of imposing or on its way. Yeah. Now, do you think that the ship itself being so... So, so big and such a, a big celebration. Do you think it's almost a way of them, I guess, kind of not, not necessarily showing their might, but kind of celebrating pagan culture as Christianity looms in and kind of knocks on the door? And it's such a big, such a big sort of message. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we're quite down to earth people now, so we always assume that everything. Um, has uh, an explanation which is more or less rational and that if, if we're going to invest in something like uh, um, burying a ship and putting treasure in it, uh, then it ought to have um, a, an impact on the, the, uh, those that are trying to overpower you in some way. However, I think that's to be a bit too down to earth. It seems to me that what might be happening is, 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 is similar, but more spiritual in character. So, for example, uh, um, 
Burma many years ago did a very interesting uh, study of the burial mounds um, along or up the River Rhine and, and their dates. And he followed it by an extremely interesting paper, another very interesting paper, which was about the earliest churches and their dates. And you could see these uh, burial mounds starting uh, at the mouth of the Rhine and, and sort of getting later and later and later as they headed towards Switzerland. And then they were followed by churches, which seemed to do the same thing. In other words, it's, it's maybe that the, the powers, the powers that uh, you believe exist and that are propitiated by uh, burying gold and burying and building mounds, that those powers need to be on your side. And if you feel there is another power, another supernatural power heading your way, which seems to have a lot of people believing in it, then you need to call up your gods to protect their territory. And it seems to me that a lot of the ritual that we are observing, not to mention the art, uh, is geared to that. So although it's exceedingly unfashionable and we're not meant to think about uh, old religion or anything like that, uh, there's no doubt that human beings have always been a bit like that and they've, they've certainly been very spiritual you know, uh, even Neanderthals are thought to be spiritual these days, and there's evidence for it as well. So, yeah, I think what we're de dealing with is an explosion of, of ritual activity designed to protect you from what is seen as um, an alien set of beliefs. If I can just like add something here, I, I, I think that makes so much sense considering the broad spectrum that we have of, uh, you know, written, what could be interpreted as, as ritual deposits in, in uh, the pre-Christian period in, in Scandinavia, which I'm familiar with. Um, you know, you see in, in a site like Gulma, for instance, um, gold deposits. They, from from our modern way of thinking about things, they don't don't make m much sense. Uh, it's it's like burying a Rolls Royce or something like that. But but of course, in in their their world, it did right, and they're imbuing the landscape with protection, with um, uh, the um, with the sort of they're, they're basically gaining the interest and favor of the gods. So that, that makes perfect sense that they uh, to me that they would do the same um, when they are seeing the the approach of of, uh, of Christianity, and then they would simply sort of like bulk up with with ritual landscape. <laughs> yeah, Goom is really interesting, and that that's uh, got a lake, isn't it, and um, and marsh around. So it's the God's home, is that right? Yes, yes, that's the literal translation of the the word. They're definitely addressing directly <laughs> the deity and saying okay we'll we'll give you lots of treasure if you protect us yeah it's interesting I, I think there's been if i'm not wrong you've had some really interesting projects haven't you on early uh religion in in scandinavia um mm -hmm. uh there's a guy at stockholm what was he called uh, had, had a big project there um hmm. Memory, can't remember. Anyway, <laughs> it's been some of it's been published already, and I think there's more to come. You know, it's one of those really big studies. Yeah, there's also um, um, in context of five thirty six this uh, year of calamity. We're not entirely sure what happened, but but it's it's generally known as the Dust Veil event. 
It's an um, volcano. Yes, yes, that's uh, that's the, the general theory, which is probably the, the correct. Um, in, in that context, we are also seeing a modern axpol. Is the Danish archaeologist who has worked with that, uh, with deposits uh, uh, that seem to be directly in in relation to that uh, event. Um, just like we also see a lot of imagery uh, uh, of the sun. Seemingly, that's at least how it's interpreted on on picture stones. Price has been uh, writing about this, hasn't he? Yes. I mean, what, what do they think the material response is then to that uh, nuclear winter or whatever? So deposits of uh, of of gold is what we're seeing, at least in the Danish area, as far as I remember, uh, modern Oxbow's uh, um, analysis. Uh, I I haven't. Uh, it's a, it's been a, it's been a while since I read them, um, but. Uh, but yeah, uh, ritual deposits of gold, uh, very much in the same uh, vein of like uh, uh, imbuing the landscape with uh, with power, probably because we're seeing a, a heavy impact on on crops. And I mean, in some places in in farther up in in Scandinavia and the Swedish and Norwegian area, there's a a, a loss of, of settlements that you know in some places range around seventy percent of settlements. Uh, um, disappear. What, what, what is, what is it? How are the settlements being lost? Are they just being deserted, or are they flooded, or what? Uh, they're, they're they're deserted, uh, probably because uh, the, uh, the, the there's no um, farming is becomes incredibly uh, problematic up there. Oh, that's interesting. So the hordes are found just in the ground, in the settlements, but not not anywhere special. Not not in bogs, for example. Um, that I don't remember exactly. I would sort of expect that there would be a, a bog deposits too, but I I can't I can't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, um, there were some earlier, weren't there? There was quite a few bog, bog uh, deposits. Yeah. right back to the certainly through the Iron Age, if I remember rightly, in, in yeah. different places. Absolutely, also in the Bronze Age and and also in the Viking Age. So some of these have to be also uh, bog deposits, but but I, I I just can't remember it that well, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, we've we've got common a common ground here that there is a a lot of thinking people in the Bronze Age Scandinavian style. So let's say the the, the first millennium AD, uh, there's a lot of thinking people in the in the North Sea Baltic region and. Uh, their thoughts are not written down, so they've rather been uh, you know, despised as intellectuals. But I don't see that that's true. It seems to me that the what what we are looking at in the archaeology is the result of 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 some some philosophies which are just not easy to articulate because they're written in material terms. But I think that doesn't make them inferior. I think it's so fascinating how. How how it was done, then I think it's easy for us to look at it from a modern perspective. And as you said, burying treasure, what what what's the purpose for that? But sometimes you have to take a moment and try and look at it through their eyes from a perspective that they they don't have the advantage of science that we have now for the reasons for why things happen. So when something negative happens, it might be a famine or crops don't grow or any sort of natural disaster i guess it's an offering of what's wealthy to you give it to to the land or what you believe in and and hopefully it fixes fixes the issue and it might sound silly but you've got to it's not that these people were stupid it's just they didn't know 
any better. So they did what they believed in at the time. I think that's uh, that's bang on. And I think also you've opened another possibility, which is that when you you find something like the Mind One ship burial, the discourse is always about, oh, what a rich person. And, oh, they had in there what they wanted. Mm-hmm. A voyage or it's our representative. And that representative is uh, going well equipped, uh, you know, in the general direction of, of Valhalla. But, but when you think of um, um, kind of early medieval um, sovereign negotiation, what, what actually happens is that uh, if you have an enemy um, living on your boundary and you don't particularly want to fight because you think you might lose, uh, you, you go to that enemy with a large amount of treasure. This is what we think the Staffordshire Horde was. Mm. And, and you say, okay, look, what about this treasure and leave us alone? It's a propitiation act. So the Sutton who bound one ship for me could easily be propitiation aimed at the spiritual power. Um, this is not just a dead person, but a dead person who's being sent to you. We know where he's going. So we might as well pile stuff with him. So when he gets there, you know, he'll be listened to. Do you think that the goods in there probably belong to multiple different people? The you know, the people would have come and brought and left something valuable in that from their own rather than it all belonging to the actual person who was being buried? Yes, we know quite a lot about this, funnily enough, uh, because the material has been so well studied by the, the British Museum. Uh, Rupert Bruce Bitford and, and his uh, colleagues did a, such a super job on it. And uh, we, yeah, we can imagine that a lot of it is homemade, and uh, he demonstrated that. So that, for example, the sword and the uh, shoulder clasps and the buckle, the baldric, all those things were very, they seem to be, I mean, very special, uh, golden garnet, beautiful stuff, but but probably local, probably made locally. And so they probably did exist in that sense. Um, the helmet is also thought to be made locally and is particularly interesting from the point of view of, of the symbolism. You probably know it. It has this um, dragon coming over the ridge of the, of, the, of the crown of the helmet. And then the dragon's Teeth ends on the uh, head, rather it ends on the forehead. On the forehead here, with its snarling teeth, and it meets a bird, which also strangely has teeth, and that's uh, displayed across the face, with the wings being the eyebrows and the and the body being the nose and the tail being the moustache and so on. So that that's a uh, uh, you know that's a, an amazing composition, which is definitely. Um, full of symbolic meaning it's little it would have once had little tiny plaques uh with with some well-known um scandinavian themes like like uh, warriors dancing and and so forth so that those things seem to be um locally made but belong to the kind of the, the wider spiritual province which we are hypothesizing about here other things though come from elsewhere so the hanging bowls uh, made of copper alloy with um, enamel escutcheons, three of those, rarely smart. Um, they're almost certainly from uh, northwest Britain. They're, they're from, um, let's say, Celtic workshops. Um, and then uh, in the uh, the coffin, 
was quite a lot of clothing. And I, I think that this is probably the, the bit that gets least attention, but it's, it's very, very interesting. Uh, and the most luxurious part of this clothing was three cloaks. They seem to have been dyed yellow, they're sort of tufted cloaks and, and dyed yellow. And they seem to, uh, according to the, uh, Elizabeth Crowfoot, came from Syria. Um, and so they're actually ex importing quite a lot. The silver comes from Constantinople, you know, the silver and the, the big uh, silver dish and, uh, and the bowls, which have all got crosses on, they're, they're finger bowls basically for, 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 for dining. They've got crosses marked on the, on the base of the bowl or inside the bowl. And uh, people said, oh, well, she's really a Christian, obviously, otherwise he wouldn't have a dish like that. Uh, but actually, it's quite hard to find a silver dish which doesn't have a cross on at, at that time. You've got to have started making it from scratch in the north. So, yeah, that's where you get them from. So the, the outreach is quite, yeah, I think it's quite, quite uh, well proven now, but only certain things. So the cauldrons are local. Lots of the clothes are local. Um, the regalia is mainly local. Uh, the, the sword and baldric and so on, also the, the, the so-called standard of um, sort of iron thing with bull's heads on it, that, that appears to be a, a local thing as well. But other things come from elsewhere. So, yeah, I think the idea of gifts, we haven't mentioned the coins, so they're all from, you know, France. So we haven't mentioned the gifts, but, but yeah, I think people would send gifts, certainly. This is part of the diplomatic process somebody's died we'll go to the funeral bring something in well, it's something we do today i guess just still you know you take flowers or you take something as a as a kind of a message yeah we do we're a lot meaner today we don't put any money in there no we don't <laughs> <laughs> so let i mean the helmet is obviously kind of the the top the pièce de résistance of of the find in most people's eyes it's the it's the thing you see if you google Sutton who yes um would that have been made for the burial or is it likely that that was something that belonged to the the, the person who was buried there and it was it would have been worn into battle and then it's been buried with him well i don't know about worn into battle but i think certainly worn and mm -hmm. uh, you, as you may know, there was an otter fur cap amongst his clothes, which is thought to have made the wearing of an arm helmet bearable. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think I think that um, uh, uh, was. I don't think it was made for the funeral. I think it was it was made for as as part of the regalia, and the reason for that is that it it stood inside. Uh, uh, on on the coffin and inside the chamber, and it must have stood there for some time, mm -hmm. because the iron um, had become brittle. So it become brittle, and when the roof fell in, it broke into lots of different sherds. Um, and when all those were put together, there were bits that um, uh, some of these plaques, these silver plaques on the outside, were, were already missing. So. You know, okay, could have been in a battle, I agree, but more likely just to be sort of fair wear and tear, but yeah, definitely 
definitely had been used. I think more or less everything had been used. The boat had been used. The boat had been patched. The the replica kind of helmet we see, how accurate do you think that is to what it would have looked like? Just in the case that it's absolutely beautiful and the amount of workmanship that must have gone into it is unbelievable. I think that bit is, is believable because you're... Mm-hmm. Rather than unbelievable, I think I think the workmanship. Yeah, you can you can uh, it, it, it's properly documented. Put it that way. The exact um, uh, uh, way that the the little plaques are disposed. Well, we didn't have all of them, so some of that's uh, replication. Uh, don't forget, it was found in sherds, so the thing had to be reconstructed. And the first time they reconstructed it, it looked a bit like a kind of. Um, coal scuttle helmet of the first world war and uh, uh, uh and they took it apart again in in the uh, 50s and then uh it, it, then it started to look like um the, the present one looks like a sort of biker's helmet uh with biker with dark glasses and uh, uh <laughs> a nice dope shaped <laughs> helmet so i'm not saying it wasn't influenced by the times but the detail, I think, has been very, very cleverly researched and has been beautifully. Uh, I, mean, I completely agree with you. I think it's the craftsmanship has been extremely well copied. Mm-hmm. Some things have been pretty baffling. I mean, I don't know whether you've um, managed to make uh, um, this kind of uh, what's it called, Damascene steel, you know, that which the um, swords are made of. Um, when you look at them, they've got they've got a sort of like a curly pattern mm-hmm. where the yeah. steel has been folded over and over again with its um, uh, with its kind of carbon lining. Fantastic! But I'm told that that's I mean I'm not saying we haven't made some we have, but we're, I'm told that it's not as good as what they made. No, I think they made some amazing some amazing like I think it's so easy for people, especially that haven't looked into it too much kind of to think back to that time and just think of barbarians or uneducated people and then when you look at the helmet and just the the skill that goes into it these they might not be the most educated in the sense of what we think of education now but the, the know-how to make something like that is is pretty amazing it is and i think if you get the chance to visit the site um at the same time as some of these enactment Groups, I think there's one called Angle Kunin. Um, they are they are very good, and they make this stuff. Um, they have have like fairs, mm-hmm. special tables, and and they show replicas they've made. Um, when we first did the museum at Sutton, who, uh, what will that be? Um, Two thousand and two, I suppose, something like that. Um, uh, the five, the, the, the artifacts in the burial chamber were all replicated, and also uh, the textiles. Um, this was the most expensive item of the whole of the uh, display, and of those that objects that filled the ship, the most expensive of those was the textiles. Oh, really? Yeah, because they take a lot of you know, it takes a lot of work to make them. And um, the, the what what people wore, you know, their clothes were really 
the best present you could get. You didn't necessarily get a sword unless it was from a relative, um, but to give a give a person a cloak or 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 or, or, or a fine tunic of some sort uh, that was. Uh, you, you, we know a lot about this because of the later presence or, or the later bequests, I should say, in Anglo-Saxon wills. Um, you can you can read, uh, you know, fascinating sort of groups of materials that have been left by somebody, and the clothes usually feature um, three cloaks or something like that. Also, sometimes the the, the, the sword that um, uh, Ulrich gave me and who got it from Alfred, who got it from, you know, that, that those kind of biographies. I think I think they are really important. Um, when you look at the when you look at the thing you imagine the all the grave goods laid out in the boat, uh, you could see most of them. You couldn't necessarily see the ones in the coffin, which are all the, which is all the private stuff. That's all his clothes, but you could see everything else laid out. And one can imagine um, that there would be a time where you could, um, where the body was lying in state, so to speak, in in the coffin, maybe with the lid off. Who knows? And then they're going round, and then the parents are pointing out to the children uh, the finds that they're looking at. You know, the children say, "What's that?" Then and they say, "Well, that is his sword, and that sword is." over 300 years old because we know where it came from actually it wasn't it was quite a modern sword in those <laughs> days, seventh century but other things were older big cauldrons they had a story uh, think of the um the liar had a story had a had a had a bard who, who used it uh, it would have been known about silver bowls used in feasts so all these things triggered the memory, and I think uh, you, you explained to the children, and then the children explained to their children what they'd seen, because nothing had was written down, but everything was still in the mind, still in the memory, and even sharper in the memory, because there aren't any documents. So your memory is pretty important. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. I I think it's interesting you said about the textiles almost being overlooked for the for the value and. Maybe, I mean, I think to the ordinary layperson, probably like me, I know when I go to the British Museum or the ship, the ship museum um, in Norway, you kind of bypass the textiles because they're not quite as shiny or amazing as aesthetically as a, as a helmet or a sword or some of the, the woodwork, the wood carving in the ship museum. They instantly grab you. And, I, and the textiles, I guess, kind of left because they don't have the same impact. But like you say, the, the amount of work that goes into them, they do have so much value. I think some of the museums, I don't know if Matthias has, uh, remembers which they are, but they actually do show them off rather well because they they put them on mannequins, really elegant women and um, and uh, chaps, you know, with all the stuff wearing all that. That makes a difference. And when they're hung up as though they were for sale, <laughs> they... They don't look really very impressive. Yeah, the the the, uh, the one that comes to mind is um, is the Bronze Age exhibit at the Danish National Museum, where they uh, they have mannequins wearing the uh, the textiles. I, I I was reminded of another thing actually. Textiles do tend to play a big role in both in the saga literature from medieval Iceland and 
later in you know Scandinavian folk tales, you often like there's often the, the the hero who comes home from abroad, the main thing that really displays uh, how rich he became when he you know went raiding in England or went to Byzantium or Russia or whatever is the is the, the the dress he's wearing. That's something that they they will always note in the saga literature. In the same way, you have you know. Um, you know, always a, uh, uh, a a a a hero who descends from a long line of kings is is wearing you know a blue cloak um, in in a folktale. That that's that's a very standard thing, right? So I think that sort of attests a little to to, to that uh, being a very stable marker of 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 importance and 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 uh, of course also riches, right? Yeah, also think of the brooches um, for the women in the, in the graves, well, sixth, sixth century graves particularly, you know, we have big square heads, you have very good, uh, lovely brooches in, in Scandinavia too. And those seem to be um, storytellers as well, because they've got a uh, little, like a quotation on them. Uh, the picture is a quotation, the picture is, is showing something from, from the, um, uh, you know, from, from the, the the gods, from uh, Thea and Thor and Freya, Freya, I should say, and Thor and Odin and so on, doing certain things which are in the stories, which you know people like Hauk have spent their whole life trying to decode them to, to see where yeah. they, which story they're referring to. But you can see why people remember them. People remember brooches, and they remember the person who was wearing it uh, there, and therefore it makes sense that. You, you send the brooch off. I, I should think quite a lot of others were kept carefully though so that they could be handed down. Something that always bothers me about dating graves from grave goods is that you can't really say whether those um, graves, uh, grave goods really date the grave. You know, mm -hmm. they, they seem to me there's quite a lot of chance of them being heirlooms. Uh, but mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe it's difficult to tell that because you can't get a, a date on the object itself being metal. So the one thing I went to ask was about the helmet that I mentioned in the email to you as well and how true it is or how accurate it is. And Matthias, you might be able to explain it a little bit better because we've spoken about it a couple of times before about the idea of one eye lighting up. Oh, yes. I don't know about that. That's, that's something else that the, uh, Neil Price came up with. And it's, it's something to do with Odin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're talking about the, the helmet as reconstructed or the helmet as replicated? Matthias is probably best to... Yeah, again, this is uh, this is quite some time ago since I uh, I, I heard uh, Neil talking about it. But um, but as far as I remember, um, he, he, he referred to um, a reenactment group that had uh, uh, tried the, using the helmets at uh, by by a fire in 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 a in a in a sort of darkly lit hall, and <laughs> and it it very it looked like uh, one arc uh, sorry one eye was sparkling, uh, and the other one was was not as as lit, and and it was sparkling was it the eyebrows? Yes, yeah, because of the uh, yeah inlaid gold and and ruby. I, I can't remember. Um, Golden garnet. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So, and, 
and I feel like he he has suggested that 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 there's something similar going on with uh, uh, the Vendel helmets, um, but I'm not entirely sure if 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 I'm misremembering that. I remember the article. I think it's uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting idea, and from the practical point of view, it wouldn't be that hard to do because you just wouldn't put gold behind the garnet, so it wouldn't crack the light. So so one eye would be not not winking and the other would be winking so <laughs> it, i mean it's quite a nice idea i think uh if you're asking me do i think they had all the bits um i don't know i mean it'd be very easy to to check that out using the, the, the great big volumes of the new ship burial publication mm-hmm. but um i don't remember anything of, of that was obviously missing from the reconstruction, so maybe there is something to be explained there. Mm. Okay, uh, yeah, I was just wondering if it was something you'd heard of or knew, like conclusively whether it, it was real or not. No, I think you have to ask the Sue Brunning that who keeps the collection. Okay, I mean, something quite like looking at the original. We we don't really get to look at the original that much. It's all on display now. Um, when when I was um, first appointed. Uh, to direct the the the, the most recent uh, campaign, uh, I went down to the British Museum and they they you know they showed me everything. Um, they gave me the great gold buckle to hold, and Leslie Webster cunningly clicked the uh, the catch at the bottom. So when I picked it up, it then sprang apart. <laughs> oh, oh blimey! This is the way to start, like wrecking. <laughs> anyway, she. Yeah. Buckle about that, but uh, certainly they are amazing close up. You know, their photography is brilliant and so on. But there's nothing quite like the real thing. And the same with 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 the shoulder cloth. You know, I'd love to put the shoulder cloths on or put them on somebody, and then see what it looks like under the sun, mm-hmm. and whether they whether they flicker and you expect them to. So. Yeah, I think you can learn so much from looking at looking at them kind of on a table and then when they're in use again with with you rebuilding the ship i think you're probably going to learn a lot from having it in a practical usable aspect rather than just looking at it and trying to imagine what it would be like so you you think it's quite a a reasonable type of research um doing experimental archaeology or do you think it's just um more of a vanity project you can be honest i'd be interested to know <sighs> I, th- I think I think you learn. My, my personal, very humble opinion would be that you learn a lot from being hands-on. You know, I I, I create things with my hands every, every day. That's kind of what I do. So I think you get a whole different perspective on things from holding it, touching it, recreating it, moving it. Even just the act of making it, there would be things that you would notice that you wouldn't necessarily get from just looking at the finished article itself yeah. almost deconstru- deconstructing it and working back and seeing the process of how it's made i think you will learn so much from it and and how how they moved it how they and what they did with it and how they used it 
I think I, I would say that um, you know experimental archaeology is uh, is is not an exact science, but uh, but hardly any <laughs> any of the disciplines involved in in uh, in, in prehistoric uh, uh, northwestern Europe uh, are, so to speak. Um, coming from the literary side of things, um, uh, that's my that's my main uh, background. Even though I've taken some archaeology classes. Um, I would say that it is incredibly valuable uh, to 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 have um, people experimenting uh, with the material side of things. To uh, and it, you know even just that that little thing that you know um, if you're if you're just stuck in your books. As <laughs> so many of my colleagues are, um, <laughs> you, you, there, there are so many thoughts and ideas that you can get uh, from 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 reading the literature that that you know wouldn't really work in reality. I, I see a, a, a little too far removed from from reality sometimes in in um, uh, in the literary scholarship. So no, I I think it's really incredibly valuable. Uh, even even if mistakes are made, and even even if uh, if sometimes uh, you can't really say that you can equate a um, say there's a uh, there's there's a guy who did a study on on shields and how well they hold up to um, uh, to uh, being hit by swords and and such things from the Viking Age. He did that in Copenhagen, I think. And uh, there's there's a lot of methodical issues you could sort of criticize. Uh, one is, of course, that well, he never really tried them in actual war. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, I mean, it's a, it's an incredibly valuable study too uh, to to really understand the material uh, materiality of, of of using a shield and and uh, and being a warrior in that situation. So yeah, I think a great example would be Luciano of Children of Ash that we've had on here quite a few times, who specialises in sort of Nordic artwork, and he he goes back and recreates a lot of the traditional pieces, and he had some amazing perspective on on a lot of what it meant from redrawing it and from going over it and looking at the different patterns. So I think going through the motions of trying to recreate something really does give you a different look at it. I think there's less scepticism than there used to be. I think when, when you're building a boat and you're putting it through its paces and so on, there was quite a lot of scepticism, I think, in, in the early days, particularly uh, when it came to um, building the Mound One ship, particularly amongst the um, the experts. We haven't been able to get a research grant, for example, to do this. We're, we're raising all the money uh, from... Uh, gifts and uh, sponsorship and so on uh, because when you think about it there, there's a reason for this skepticism when, when we were on the edda and uh, seeing whether it could tack or not um, and then capsized and it went to the bottom they, uh, they you know they said okay so what is your what's the point of building a, a replica ship of uh, who so you know, in, in the old days, I would have said, well, we want to test various uh, social theories. We want to know whether they had slaves and uh, all the rest mm -hmm. of it. Um, uh, but then having been questioned about the Edda, uh, they, 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 they asked, you know, what, why did you do that? So we wanted to know whether we could tag. And um, could you? And I said, well, no, we, we couldn't actually. But that doesn't mean they couldn't. 
So they said, well, what was the point of that then, since you nearly... <laughs> I said, well, actually what it's for is to see what it felt like. And, and that, that touches a button these days. I mean, it wouldn't have cut any ice 10, 20 years ago. It wouldn't be, wouldn't be considered decent, you know, from a research point of view. Who cares what people felt like? I think people now realize, actually, yes, it's really important. Um, it's very important. And also what skills there are. Everything survives except the skills. You know, if you think uh, we're going to dig up uh, hang gliders in, in 20 years, or no, that's not 200 years' time, um, and people say, well, what are these things for, I wonder? And yeah. <laughs> then you, you, you don't know because you don't have the skill with it. I think this is incredibly important, and this is a very, uh, very sort of uh, uh, central and and deep conversation that uh, that uh, these uh, different uh, academic disciplines need to have with one another and themselves. Um, personally, this is something that has come intuitively for me. Some, one of the the ways that I have always approached the material has been through personal experiences of various kinds I mean, I, portions of my uh, PhD dissertation were on this, the story of Thor fishing for the Midgard serpent and um, the how how some of the skaldic uh, um, uh, poems and the stances uh, might actually uh, relate to real experience of, uh, of, of being at sea and that's comes straight from my own experiences of sailing as a child in 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 Greenland and um and uh, uh you know fishing and uh, um hauling in yarn and those kinds of things so it's a, that's something that i realized after i had written everything and i was like i should have i should have thought closer on this <laughs> uh, <laughs> but but that's that's where some of that uh, uh really really came from that's that's how i got that perspective um and and yeah, no, I think it's a so so really important to uh, uh, to 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 work with that. There's a, it is loosening up. I I know that there are um, people out there who are working on, for instance, reconstructing uh, the um, auditive uh, scape uh, or however you want to say it uh, of 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 the past. Like what what did it sound like? And this could. This could seem like you know you could be like well what what the, why does that matter well you know in in our modern age especially now especially living in these urban landscapes and uh, and with all of these uh, technological thingamajigs right there's a lot of noise around us that we have become used to that uh, somebody a thousand years ago would be perhaps even terrified of um, so 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 actually working with that. I think is is incredibly important too, right? I think when you start, you know, you do your next bit of writing, definitely to try and weave in or fold in your own personal experiences with sailing, with what the evidence is for the boat. That I think that's the direction we should definitely go in. The two camps at the moment, they're, they're, they're too widely spaced and, and the, the occupants have got their backs to each other. So the academic camp will only work off what is evidence, it's not fact, but it's evidence, they, that's how it's called, and it has to be reasoned. And the reasoning has got duller and duller, everybody has to admit that. And sometimes you spend a long time, you know, knowing 
more and more about less and less until you know all there is to know about nothing, as they say. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas the novelist camp, if you like, the fiction camp, you know, they despise it. They despise, everyone despises everybody else. They're despising the academics. Academics are despising them. But that's ridiculous. I mean, it's uh, shared experience. It's shared experience. If, If we're trying to try and uh, give a new life to people who who lived long before we did and had different challenges but nevertheless were human you know if we're trying to do that then you need everything you need everything you, people can still if they if you're making it up they can still they can still tell but if it's based on something if it's based on some experience you, that you've had okay we built a ship this is what we did wrong this is what didn't work this is you know if you're honest about it and I think there's a really nice story to tell there. And that story then fuels another story, uh, which everybody can enjoy. So you want to teach children about the early Middle Ages. You know, you don't have a chance the way it's uh, done in universities. But it would be OK, you know, if we could somehow, uh, I don't say fictionalize it, but but novelize it, try and make it interesting, try and make it fun, try and make it into into stories that don't necessarily involve endless kings and uh, with strange names that you can't pronounce, but instead of that, uh, ordinary people, uh, the sort of people who make campfires and and uh, who polish things and who try and make their um, swords work properly and who get angry and and try and take revenge and you know all those things I think are great and they they haven't found their author yet, but I'm hoping the next generation they will find their author. Mm. We'll start therefore learning a lot more as a result. I think that almost pulls us full circle back to the important importance of things like the movie, The Dig, because it brings eyes onto something that a lot of people may not have already known about or looked at. Like my wife, we watched The Dig yesterday and she was like, I knew nothing of this. I'd never heard of it. And she was so interested in it by the end. And then that leads people to go and do their own research and at least gets them involved in it. So you need those entertainment, entertaining things that pull people in. And then you can get into the details and the nitty gritty and the and the pure accuracies. Yeah, I didn't um, think the dig had much archaeology in it. I thought it was quite good, and it certainly attracted a lot of people. I mean, I was slightly involved in it, but I mean, the BBC asked me to do a podcast. Did a podcast, uh, which they called the real story or something. So I <laughs> did a chat, you know, a bit like this, and that was uh, downloaded fifty three thousand times in the first three days so plenty of interest you know there's no shortage of interest and that that didn't have very much about um uh the dig itself in it at all it it was about the 1939 and what happened after that and what we know now that we didn't know so it was much more about um uh, understanding as well as uh trying to get something across about what it feels like to dig have you have you got time to answer a couple of quick questions before you go um okay so brewer has asked would she said she would love to hear your thought about the reuse of the sutton who site um and and get i don't know whether she means like in modern times as a museum turn your mic on brewer Hi, um, I'm curious about the historical reuse of the site, uh, especially in relations to maybe the the gallows burials or some of the other earlier uh, reuses of the area and the changes in perception of the local population. 
as regarding the site? Yes, I did. I did mention uh, that there were three cemeteries, one on top of the other, uh, but I didn't say what they were. So the first one is a sixth century family cemetery. And then there's the royal F cemetery, the one with the burial mounds. And, and that dates to the uh, early to mid seventh century. And then after that, uh, it becomes an execution site. So the execution site was really interesting and uh, quite hard to excavate and quite gruesome in its way. Uh, so there were two um, uh, sites. There was uh, two sites of, for the gallows and the gallows were uh, inferred from uh, post holes. And the people, um, uh, the unfortunate people who'd been executed were uh, just put into graves at, at very strange um, angles. They're just sort of dumped in, in, in these graves. So one lot around Mound 5 and another lot out on the track, uh, which uh, runs, it's a very old track, which runs alongside the side of the, of the burial mounds. And, um, and that dates from the 8th century through to the 10th. Uh, now, I don't know, uh, well, it, it, the interpretation I gave that in the end was that it was a response to Christian conversion, so that when the Christian kings came, um, they uh, abandoned the royal burial ground and were they themselves were buried in churches. And uh, those people who wouldn't conform, it seems to me, are the people we are seeing in the 39 burials that were excavated in the burial ground of kings. In the 12th century, the gallows, we, we happen to know, the gallows moved uh, to, to Wilford. It stood on, uh, they stood on a hill above the Wilford. And um, that was so that they could uh, take advantage of the new route way, if you see what I mean. Um, and then the mounds stood by themselves in the open countryside, and uh, we didn't really have any documentation for them, but we have a uh, some archaeological evidence that many of these mounds were made into uh, rabbit warrens for, you know, for, for farming rabbits. Uh, lots of um, holes ran through the mounds, and then there were of sort of four big holes at the axial points so that they could put the ferrets in one end and collect the rabbits as they ran out the other. So quite a lot of the mounds seems to, to serve that purpose. But then by the time you get to um, the end of the Middle Ages, then uh, we know that the first excavations happened in that area in the time of Henry VIII by a guy called John Dee. And, um, that was um, locally known as, as um, uh, mining, so that the, they, they went into the mounds in order to get the treasure. So that sort of coincides with the, the shafts that, that, we, that we found. We also know that one of the burial mounds was excavated with a priest in, uh, in, in attendance, in case any, any devils or ghosts came out. Makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> So that was, um, uh, the, so then the mounds were uh, dug in the center. Then they were trenched later on, as I described, but between that, they got plowed. Probably the time of the Napoleonic Wars, um, lots of land got plowed up so that they could, pl they could plant um, cereals and, and so forth. So that's when the mounds were sort of rubbed, erased and, and rubbed flat. 
and then we get into the into the modern period. The, the, the excavation in 1860 uh, was done by a certain Mr. Barrett, who was living there. Uh, so we know you know more from from that moment on. But uh, as you probably realise, that it's it's a fascinating piece of England, and it was quite busy in prehistory. It had its moment of glory uh, when it was an Anglo-Saxon cemetery, and thereafter it kind of reverted uh, to being heathland. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Thank you very much. Let's let's wrap this up. I, I'm cautious of keeping you too long. I know you wanted to be off for four o'clock. Thank you very much for spending the time. Um, I'm sure everybody will find this extremely interesting. I know I have, and I'm sure Matthias has as well. Absolutely. I can just answer this last question. Of course you can. How likely is it? that there might be similar findings in the future, or do experts believe they've found burials that size already? Yes, very interesting question. Um, I think that uh, the, the mounds uh, have this unfortunate habit of being built with earth, and, and that means two things. First of all, people came and helped themselves to the earth. Uh, <laughs> we know that somebody building a golf course came and quarried a lot of earth from Sutton Hoo, for example. Um, and secondly, there was a, there's a lot of ploughing, so you can make a, a barrow go pretty flat. However, that doesn't mean you've lost the contents of it, uh, because the, with a bit of luck, the burial will be below ground. Um, if it isn't below ground, then uh, the finds get disturbed by the plough and, and get they stay in around that area. So we've got two big weapons. One is aerial photography, which can pick up uh, barrows, uh, particularly their quarry ditches. Uh, the other is in Britain, we have the Portable Antiquities Scheme, which every self-respecting archaeologist in Scandinavia disapproves of, um, and certainly they do in, in, in continental Europe, where we allow people to use metal detectors and they have to, or they are supposed to, declare what they find. This is how the Staffordshire hoard was found. So that means if you find these telltale bits of um, metal work, they are pretty distinctive. I mean, they're pretty fine, pretty distinctive, you know, filigree uh, using well, gold and garnet and so on. So if you find something like that, then there probably is a mound in that area. So everybody's much more alert now. So what Sutton Who has done and the publicity surrounding it is that it's made everybody conscious that within the, the landscape, uh, there are these monuments of immense value which have been undervalued and, and just sort of ploughed up up to now but I think now everybody's much more conscious that they can uh, really affect the uh, the story of the of the whole country they add to history in, in a positive way so they've got a very high value and they should be looked after Am I am I correct in remembering that there's just a couple of recent uh, discoveries of Viking Age uh, ship burials, maybe in Northern England? Yeah, Scotland. In, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they're quite small boats, but the Vikings had ship burials, Orkney, well Shetland, Orkney, round to the west coast as well, and Isle of Man. So a big arc around the north of the island. Um, uh, there are many Norse. Uh, ship mm-hmm. yeah perfect i mean martin if you ever have time in the future i think me and Matthias would love to have you back on to speak about 
Um, Paul Mo- is it Paul Mahomic? I'm yep. gonna I'm gonna ruin the the pronunciation. It's just easy. <laughs> but we would we would love to have you on to do an episode about there and what you found and how it relates to kind of the Viking activity. If you know, if you have time, um, maybe next month sometime. Uh, I, I, yes, I'm, I might have. It, I, I'm, I'm at the moment rather, rather, um, rather weighed down because I'm trying to get these Sicilian uh, monographs finished. But I think that the the, the Sutton Who story is uh, a book that exists. I mean, if anyone wants to chase that up, uh, if, you, if you just put, uh, you know, put Sutton Who story into Amazon, I think you'll find it easy enough. And there's also one for Port Mahomet called uh, Port Mahomet Monastery of the Picts, um, published by University Press in Edinburgh and uh, 2016 that was. So I think, I think it's quite recent. And also the main report is on open access, so you can get, get to that as well. So there are ways of, of uh, satisfying your curiosity uh, already. And maybe uh, when we get sort of further into the year and uh, things ease up a bit, um, I'd be delighted to come back and um, I'm sorry I couldn't uh, speak to everybody but thank you very much for the invitation I could have spoke to you for we could, we could have done three hours of this show it could have gone on for, <laughs> for a long time um, so yeah I will I will email you down the line and see if we can line something up thanks so much yeah thank, thank you so thank, much for joining us thank you very much uh, it's nice to meet you oh, Martin just before you go um I wanted to ask: Have you have you raised all the money for the the creating of the ship? Uh, no, not at all. But we've got a certain amount. Um, it's um, the, um, e- the, the the internet address is saxonship.org. Okay. And they've got a big website there. Uh, it's very cheerful and merry. Shows lots of activity happening uh, by the river. Um, they're extremely active. They've got a brilliant um, secretary who's also an Oars woman, and she's uh, she's really running it. She's the manager, mm-hmm. uh, and the people who belong to it are mainly um, sort of uh, mariners. They're, they're yachtsmen and people who who have fishing boats, things like that. So they they are they are first and foremost um, seafarers, and occasionally they ask me. Would the Anglo Saxons have done that? I asked because I'd, I'd like to see if we could raise some money through my company to, to donate to. I think it would be a, a beautiful thing to do and a great cause. Oh, that'd be lovely. So, yeah, you want to write to, to Jack, J A C Q. But if you go to the website, all the contacts are there, saxonship.org. Perfect. Thank you very much. And thank you for, for spending the time. Okay, cheers. Bye bye.